This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, top of the morning to you all. Or if you're listening to a replay or podcast, top of whatever time of day you're tuning in. We've reached this century mark, 100 episodes of Polyoptics, beginning back in early 2011 and now two years and change later. We're older, hopefully a wee bit wiser. For those loyal folks who find our blend of insidery talk and polyoptic analysis a decent diversion of an hour every week, we very much appreciate you tuning in. Our longevity, it turns out, has exceeded by a year the reign of Ann Curry as co-host of NBC's Today Show. And on this episode of Polyoptics, we welcome back now three-time guest Brian Stelter of the New York Times to talk about his hot-off-the-presses book, Top of the Morning, out from Grand Central Publishing, to talk about the cutthroat world of morning TV, as well as the range of things Brian covers for The Grey Lady. Then, as Matt Lauer wouldn't say, on a not-so-lighter note, we're going south of the border with my old friend Ambassador Charles Shapiro, president of the Institute of the Americas. With President Obama visiting Mexico and Costa Rica this week, we thought we'd check in with Charles, one of the surest hands in Latin American diplomacy, about the stakes for the U.S. in the region and how the president works to put our best foot forward. In a career spanning more than 30 years at the State Department, Charles has served among many roles as our ambassador to Venezuela and Trinidad and Tobago. And it was in Trinidad on a different assignment that Charles and I got to know each other over an expatriate Passover Seder in 2009 when I was advancing President Obama at the Summit of the Americas. But first, it's 7 a.m. somewhere. It's time for the morning shows. CBS This Morning on CBS, Good Morning America on ABC, and of course, today on NBC, the long-running ratings champion that this year surrendered its crown to Robin Roberts and George Stephanopoulos. Brian Stelter, reporter, tweeter, Instagrammer, blogger, and now author. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. What does NBC need to do, Brian, to regain its crown, and what are they doing to do it? What are they doing to do it might be the easier question, because I don't pretend to be a television producer. I think that they've done is a lot of incremental steps to make the Today Show feel fresher, a little younger, uh, a little smarter. And this has been visible ever since Ann Curry was removed last summer, and the enormity of the problem facing the Today Show became clear. Well, let's go back then to what brought us to that point in the first place. Uh, uh, the the transition, as you write, from uh, Katie Couric to Meredith Vieira was a smooth one. Meredith had, uh, a, a, I guess, five or six years uh, in the co-host seat alongside Matt with what you would probably describe in your book, Brian, chemistry, the thing that he had with Katie Couric as well. What What's so unique about the chemistry with Katie and Matt or Meredith and, and Matt? They seemed to understand their roles and play them very well. Sometimes anchors are actors, meaning they lead the conversation, and sometimes they're reactors, reacting to what the leader has done. And for a while, uh, Katie Couric was that actor. Then for a while, Matt Lauer was, once Meredith Vieira came on board. But but in both cases, uh, the, the male and female leaders of the conversation, they knew uh, their roles and they knew the other person's roles, and they played them exceptionally well. 
for some reason, and, and it can be debated forever what the reasons were, Dan Curry and Matt Lauer didn't have that. They weren't in that same sort of a lockstep. And that's why really the fatal mistake of the Today Show wasn't removing Anne, it was promoting her in the first place. So Brian Stelter, author of Top in the Morning, if you are Meredith Vieira and you've got a, a relatively short run compared to maybe Jane Pauley and Katie Couric, why do you step away from the ratings champion today's show at the top of your game, seemingly. A lot of this had to do with her family interests. Uh, she truly wanted to spend more time with her family, uh, not just an excuse you sometimes hear from others. Uh, in her case, her husband Richard uh, has had multiple sclerosis for many years, and there have been times in her career where she's wanted to step back to spend more time with him. Uh, in this case, also her kids were coming up in a, in a situation, their college age, at least one of them. Uh, graduation was looming. Uh, the real world was looming. She wanted to spend more time with them as well, especially to have the summer with them, which is why she went to NBC in early 2011 and said, I'd like to leave the show in June uh, so that I can spend my summer uh, with them. And NBC, although they begged and begged and pleaded with her to stay, did accept her decision and start uh, then figuring out who to replace her with. So let's set up this conundrum and the players involved and the timing and the monetary stakes involved. You've got uh, Jeff Zucker passing the reins to Steve Burke. You've got Jim Bell. You've got Matt Lauer. And you've got a lot of money involved. And what are the options they pursue? The bosses at NBC seemed to conclude this was a non-decision, that they had to promote Ann Curry. And when we say bosses, what we really mean are uh, the, uh, the, the new bosses from Comcast that have just taken over. Uh, Steve Burke had just become the new chief executive of NBC. He had asked Jeff Zucker to step aside, and Jeff had. But before Zucker stepped aside, he encouraged his colleagues, well, really his subordinates, not to promote Ann Curry. He said that he didn't think Ann and Matt had the right chemistry, that they wouldn't be a good fit together. But Steve Kappas, the head of the news division, uh, who remained there after Comcast took over, believed that it was Ann's turn. He was loyal to Ann Curry. He had been friendly with her for years, and he believed that Ann had earned a chance at this job. And he was probably right about that. Ann Curry had earned the chance at this job. If she was going to uh, be removed from the, the Today Show, it should have happened well before 2011. Any time you have someone sit on a set for 15 years reading the news, viewers are going to expect that person to get promoted at some point. So NBC did what was essentially the easy thing by promoting Ann, the easy thing, the obvious thing, uh, but looking back, it seems as if they lacked any real creativity, any real willingness to take a risk. I should mention one other factor, and maybe the most important one of all, and that is that Matt Lauer was thinking about leaving the Today Show. Right. His deal was up at the end of 2012. And here's the scenario that scared NBC more than anything. If Meredith Vieira had left in 2011, and then Ann Curry got passed over by some outside hire, and she left in an angry huff as well, in 2011. And then Matt Lauer left in 2012. Well, at that point, they might as well just give up and go home. GMA would clearly have beaten them if that had happened. So there was some thought to the idea that, well, they kind of had to promote Ann Curry in case Matt Lauer left. Because Ann also had a unique con contractual arrangement at that point after having missed uh, being crowned earlier when Meredith got the role, right? That, that's right. I, I should have added that, that she had a contract that said, it, not, not that it guaranteed her the job 
per se. But it said that if she didn't get the co-host job, well, then she could leave the next day and start at another network the next morning. And the notion of waking up uh, and seeing Ann Curry on CBS or any other network was one that, that the producers of the Today Show really didn't want to reckon with. Now, before we get into how that actual year went down with Ann side-by-side uh, side with Matt, talk about the caveats that Matt himself expressed about the chemistry and also the financial stakes involved in getting it right or getting it wrong. He was indeed concerned with her promotion because he didn't think he had good chemistry with her. He expressed this to the executives ahead of time, uh, but not in a particularly forceful way. He, he, he expressed his concerns, but he didn't try to veto her promotion. Some of his friends and colleagues now look back and think, gosh, they wish he had been more forceful. They wish he had vetoed her or something, uh, because then they might not have uh, promoted her in the first place. And this all matters, of course, because there's half a billion dollars in revenue at stake at the Today Show. That's about how much the show makes every year in advertising revenue. And, and even the, the slight slippage from that half a billion uh, sets off alarm bells and sirens inside NBC. So let's hear a, a little clip from that first day of Anne on the set and paint the broader picture that you paint in Top of the Morning about some of the things that were said and how that sort of began a downward spiral toward what we will, what we will all now remember as Operation Bambi. Let's hear the Today Show. And good morning. Welcome to Today on a Thursday morning. I'm Matt Lauer. And I'm Ann Curry in for, I guess, nobody this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Myself and I. It's nice me. to be able to say that, isn't I know, it? It's, it's crazy. I can't believe it. It's such a thrill. It is a tradition around here that we like to play that little piece of audio once again for a person on their first day. So let's take Anne a listen. Ann Curry. <laughs> that was it? <laughs> Now, in the rest of the clip, Brian, you hear her talking about uh, being the ner the theater nerd next to the uh, uh, football quarterback and something about deodorant, which I couldn't find anywhere online. Perhaps that's been exercised from the YouTube archives of the world. I'm so glad you dug up that clip because even in that clip, something goes wrong. You know, in the very first moment of her uh, co-hosting, when the audio clip doesn't uh, work correctly, it's as if even the audio engineer doesn't want her to be paired with Matt Lauer. So what happened that day? And, and talk about the, the reference to deodorant and, and how that just sort of was so anti-chemistry as opposed to yeah, pre yeah, there previous was a, mixings. Yeah, there was a, a segment that it was a, basically a greatest hits reel about Anne, all about Anne. And at the end, I, I guess she had been sweating because she made a comment about how she wished she had worn deodorant to work. It's the kind of thing that Matt Lauer just didn't know how to respond to. And it, and it was the first of many, many examples of, uh, of how they just didn't know how to play back and forth together. One, one NBC executive remarked at one point that it was as if Matt Lauer would, would serve the tennis ball over the net, and he would never know how, Matt, how Ann Curry was going to serve it back. He, she, he never knew how she was going to respond. And so after a while, he stopped serving altogether, and then it looked like they were, they were even worse than they really were. It's that kind of inability to know how to play with each other that doomed them. So who is Jim Bell, and what precipitates Operation Bambi, and how does that play out over the next, what, six, seven, eight months? Within about a, even a month of Ann Curry's tenure as co-host, people inside the network were saying this probably wasn't a good idea. Uh, I was aware of one case where Jim Bell, the executive producer of Today, said to a, 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 another colleague, gosh, you know, we, we, this was probably a mistake. We just didn't want to see Ann show up on another network. By the end of the year, of 2011, by the beginning of 2012, Jim Bell starts thinking about an actual plan about how to remove her 
who would replace her, all that sort of uh, stuff. And the first step in this had to be Matt Lauer renewing his contract because if Matt Lauer hadn't renewed, if he had left the show at the end of 2012, then they're back to where they were in 2011, facing uh, the possible loss of two co-hosts. They couldn't risk that. So they had to make sure Matt Lauer was on board before they removed Ann. That's how their fates were really intertwined in that way. Uh, early on in this process, uh, a colleague remarked to Jim Bell, wouldn't removing Ann Curry be like killing Bambi? And so became, it became this tongue-in-cheek name, Operation Bambi, a sort of joking reference to what was about to go down. But it speaks to the idea that this was planned months and months in advance. Within six months of Ann Curry co-hosting, there was a plan to replace her. And she looks back now, according to her friends, and thinks she never really had a chance to co-host. She was being undermined the whole time. Now, across town at Times Square, something very different is happening between uh, Ben Sherwood, James Goldston, and the show that they're responsible for. As one show is being is on a gradual decline, what's happening to ABC's product? Uh, ABC is getting all of its ducks in a row. ABC is figuring out uh, what its best uh, show could be. And because for so many years, Good Morning America tried to copy the Today Show. This is uh, oftentimes what number two shows do. They copy the number one show. The Today Show got a street-level studio, and GMA got a street-level studio in, in, in Times Square in that case. Uh, the Today Show had concerts, so GMA started having concerts. But in 2011, GMA in some ways stopped copying Today so much. They decided to be uh, more fun, uh, more lighthearted, uh, more entertaining. They decided to, instead of remove a host the way that, that Ann Curry was removed today, they decided at GMA to add hosts. So Josh Elliott became the news anchor, Lara Spencer became the lifestyle anchor, and all of a sudden there were five people around the table, and the camera had zoomed way out, so it looked more like The View than it did look like the Today Show. It, it basically, they were getting ready so that when the opportunity came, when the Today Show screwed up, because eventually it was going to, whether it happened in a year or five years or ten years, uh, they were getting ready for that moment. And if you're my old friend George Stephanopoulos, how are you philosophically rationalizing doing segments about adorable cats? <laughs> there were more and more of those segments. That's true. More and more viral videos and, and things like that. But, but I think uh, he rationalized it a couple of ways. For one thing, he gets paid a lot of money to do it. For another, he also hosts the Sunday morning show this week, the political show that he can call his own, that he can really make his own. Uh, and so he had that to focus on as well. But I think the third, maybe most important uh, point here, is that by adding other people and by becoming more loose as a show, George Stephanopoulos was able to be more of himself. He didn't feel the need to, to fake interest necessarily in the fashion segments at 8.30 because that's what Lara was there for, and, and that's what Josh was there for, and that's what Sam was there for. He was able to be more of himself, and I think uh, that was something that was overlooked uh, in, 2000, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2011 and 2012 when, uh, when the show did get softer. George was able to still be the hard news person there. Now let's take a quick trip uh, to the west side of Manhattan and uh, and what's happening over at CBS. And uh, a new young president of CBS News, David Rhodes, talks to an, an old dean of television broadcasting, Charlie Rose. And while their ratings haven't sort of ballooned, they certainly are 
they they took their own chunk, didn't they? They did, and they're making interesting progress in the ratings now. I I didn't include a lot about CBS this morning in the book because in their first year uh, as a news show in 2012, the ratings didn't really budge very much at all. They didn't rise. They didn't fall. Uh, this was the first year with Charlie Rose and uh, Gail King, and about halfway through the year, Nora O'Donnell became uh, the third host, replacing Erica Hill. Uh, the show puttered along in 2012, but early in 2013, early this year, the show started to show a significant improvement in the ratings. I mentioned it in the afterword of the book because I feel like in the next couple of years we're going to maybe see some interesting moves made by the CBS show, which is more serious, uh, more about interviews, and it seems to be finding an audience day by day. One thing that a fan of Morning Joe like myself might have anticipated is that when Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski had their contracts uh, were, were up for expiration at MSNBC, they might follow their old EP, Chris Licht, over to uh, CBS. But it seems like uh, Licht, even with his current crop of talent, has, has begun to get that magic going. That's the sense that I have. It's, it's in some ways anecdotal because... Uh, I hear about more fans of the show than I actually see in the ratings, you know what I mean? Uh, but that's how it is for, for Morning Joe as well. It has an audience that, that, um, that is very loyal, very passionate about its show. And that can, be some, that can be very useful in this crowded media world, even if it's not always reflected in the, in the day-to-day ratings. I, you know, I won't be surprised if in the future Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski do look around at other networks besides MSNBC. But for the time being, uh, MSNBC seems to be the right place for them. So let's check back in with uh, Rockefeller Center Studio 1A and listen for a moment to that moment when uh, uh, Bambi signed off for the last time. For all of you who saw me as a groundbreaker, I'm sorry I couldn't carry the ball over the finish line, but man, I did try. And so to all of you who watched, thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me touch yours, and thank you for your tweets and your emails and and for your support, and and I will keep trying, and I'm so sorry I've turned into a sob sister this morning. Please (laughs) forgive me, but I hope you'll, you'll wish me well. That wasn't exactly the communications plan, was it? It's still hard to listen to now. I don't know if there was a communications plan at all, to be honest. I look back and I think there were there were two kinds of mistakes made in June of 2012 at the Today Show. One was a actual um, uh, decision, that, you know, a mistake that, that was made, which was removing Ann Curry swiftly, uh, doing it in a way that that really uh, seemed to affect her uh, and cause her a lot of pain. But the other set of mistakes were PR mistakes. They were PR missteps. Uh, there was only one PR person at the show in charge of the whole show. Uh, and I kind of think there should have been a whole war room of people there to help the show. In addition, NBC never really explained why Ann Curry was being removed. There was never a, a true explanation, rationalization, and no one ever really took responsibility for it. Looking back, maybe if someone had come out and said, this is why we're doing it, and I'm the one that will take the blame if it goes wrong, maybe if that had happened this wouldn't still seem to linger the way it does. But how does that compare with the exit, for instance, of Joan London from Good Morning America, which you talk about in your book? Joan London was willing to play along, it seems like. Back, back, uh, back then, when she was pushed out by ABC, she put out a statement saying that it was her decision because she really wanted to spend time with her kids while they were still kids. Uh, of course, nowadays she says, oh, man, you know, it's not, it's not a picnic having to wake up with your children and take care of them in the morning. She, she freely admits nowadays that, uh, that it was ABC's choice and that she just played along. Uh, 
looking back even at uh, Deborah Norville and that terrible transition at the Today Show in, in, uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, even then, there was an executive, Dick Ebersol, who engineered Deborah Norville's promotion, uh, who came out, took the blame, and then left the show pretty quickly. This time, we didn't really see that happen, and I, and I think that's partly why Anchorage fans, some of them at least, are still so upset. So how have the last six, seven, eight months gone with the new team, with Matt, Savannah, Al, the emergence of Willie Geist? It is awkward nowadays when we see Ann Curry come on the Today Show only in taped pieces. She doesn't ever come on live. It does seem to be a painful reminder of what went wrong last year. But when uh, when she's not there on, on the, the typical day, when, when she's not uh, including a segment on the show, the show does seem to be getting some of its mojo back. Uh, I, I, some people disagree with me on this. Some critics say the show is still uh, struggling, just as it was last year. But I think get the sense that uh, people like Matt Lauer are uh, more dedicated to the show than ever, and they're trying to prove their detractors wrong. Uh, I, I think in some ways the race is going to be more interesting to watch this year than it was last year, because GMA has been winning for about a year now, and the Today Show is dead set on getting that crown back. So let's talk about some of the uh, tricks that have come out of the hat even this week. We heard Matt uh, and Savannah with a big announcement on Monday morning about sort of an old-school uh, trick that the day show would take, which is basically taking the show on the road. What's, taking a road trip. This is, this is what happens with these shows when, when they do stumble. They go back to the old playbook, the old reliable playbook. And this has, we should say, worked in the past. They're going to take a trip in May uh, from Hawaii, then to the West Coast, then to uh, Chicago, then to Orlando, and then they're going to end up on Friday in some surprise city or some surprise location. And by doing that, by doing that kind of road trip, I think they're going to try to emphasize the family notion of the show, try to show the cast members together having fun. You know, the X factor in all of this is that we, we don't know really how cynical viewers are these days or not. So some viewers do want to buy into the family idea, but other viewers treat this show like it's a soap opera. Uh, they treat this show as if these are all characters playing roles. And those, uh, those viewers may not go along with the, these more staged ideas of a, a family. So you and I have talked about this in the past, and as a Morning Joe fan and a, a Willie Geist fan, I see the rise of the younger brother. But it seems mm. to have gone in sort of fits and starts over the last few months, uh, the inability perhaps to let go of the freedom that Morning Joe offers and the ability to take a platform when Matt ne may need the the front and center position to solidify where Today Show is. It, with all of your reporting and all of your sources, what does the future hold for Willie Geist? I, I think you're on to something there about the fits and starts, uh, but I think in general, uh, Willie Geist is viewed as the favorite, the in-house favorite to replace Matt Lauer. Uh, I don't know if that was in his contract last year, but it's certainly how the show acts, uh, how it uh, performs on a day-to-day -day basis. And case in point, Willie Geist will be going on this road trip in May, which I found very telling because typically uh, when you do a trip like this, you just send the four main anchors. You don't typically send that 9 a.m. host. That's the role that Willie Geist has now. But we have seen him on the show a lot. We've seen the camera today pull out the same way the GMA cameras did to show all four or five of them together uh, on the set sometimes. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Because when Matt Lauer renewed his contract last year, there was an assumption in a lot of circles this would be his last as co-host of today. He signed up because he wanted to help the show stay strong, keep it at number one. Well, a week later, it started losing. It fought a second place. 
he may not be very happy about that. Uh, but the sense is that this is his last contract. So whether it's going to be Willie Geist or someone else, uh, the network does have to think about transition just as it is in late night between Jay, Jay Leno and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fallon. Beyond the bold-faced names, beyond the hosts, beyond the executive producers and the news presidents, talk about, as you talk about in your book, Top of the Morning, the role of bookers, which has been so prominent on display this week. I mean, the the, the station that got the A.J. Clemente get, uh, and then the station that got the Jason, uh, the show that got the Jason Collins get. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get news one afternoon that Jason Collins, uh, uh, an, an, a longtime NBA player, uh, comes out and uh, talks about his uh, sexual orientation to Sports Illustrated. What determines which show he shows up on the next day? There are a wide variety of factors, and one of them is the persuasiveness, uh, the persuasion tactics of the bookers at the shows, who uh, can whisper all sorts of things into the ears of guests. In the case of Jason Collins, I suspect there was a Clinton connection. Uh, we saw Bill Clinton come out right away and, and right. support Jason Collins. Uh, there was a Stanford connection to Chelsea Clinton. And I wonder if George Stephanopoulos had uh, an advantage uh, because he used to work uh, for the Clinton administration. That's speculation on my part, but it was uh, they, they were, those were a few dots that were connected right away when that booking happened. Uh, in the case of, uh, of that anchor in, in, in AJ North Clemente. Dakota, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was blanking on his name, which I, I suppose uh, attests to how this culture works. People pop up out of nowhere and then disappear just as quickly. But it was a great booking when the Today Show got him because they were able to put him on the set and have him sit next to Matt Lauer, have his 15 minutes of fame. And, and that's a case where a booker will call and offer uh, a bunch of different things. They'll offer a, a promise, a certain amount of airtime, perhaps. You know, we guarantee you'll be on for X number of minutes. Uh, we promise to put you up in a fancy hotel in New York and pay for your plane tickets and take you out to a great dinner. Oh, and by the way, you know, maybe that person, and I'm just speculating here again, but this is how they think. Oh, you know, I know a couple of talent agents. Maybe I can introduce you to them. There, there's those sorts of non uh, non-finance uh, or non-monetary commitments that are made that end up being uh, really important uh, between these bookers and these guests. So the current... Uh executive editorship of today uh, and the decisions that have to be made and the notion that the show has to do a lot to get back to get its mojo back the decision made uh, in the aftermath of the explosion of the fertilizer plant in West Texas Mm -hmm. brought Matt Lauer on location to West that day uh, and and yet, as I reflected on it for the next 48 hours, it seemed to me the last place news-wise he would want to be. What was your reflection on that, given everything else that was happening in Boston? I thought Matt Lauer was actually in the right place, uh, but at the wrong time. And, and sometimes that happens in television. Uh, he was there on Friday morning as the manhunt in Boston uh, dominated the news. And yet I wanted him there because I thought the story in Texas hadn't gotten enough attention. And uh, having he and for CNN, Anderson Cooper there in in Texas, I thought was a good thing. Uh, Sometimes these news cycles can't be controlled. Uh, They can't be tamed. And there was one great benefit to that misplacement, to having Matt in the wrong place that day, even though it was an important story. And that was that Savannah Guthrie really shined as the basically the, the only anchor on the Today Show that morning. She, she was on for basically seven hours straight uh, from 6 a.m. until uh, 1 p.m. Matt Lauer was on once in a while, but really she was the only leader of the show, and it was the best day of her career. Even her competitors were praising her privately that afternoon. So I, I suspect it ended up being a good thing for the show 
because it, it, it really was able to show off how great Savannah Guthrie can be. And it didn't hurt to have Pete Williams on the other end of the uh, IFB that day either, did it? That's, that's a great point. One of the things that has happened in these morning shows, they, they've lost some of their stables of correspondence over the years, some of the, the veterans that, that we know and love from these shows. And, and to be able to build some of those back up would be a great thing. We, we see the Today Show doing that, I think, uh, with some of its correspondence, and, and they are definitely lucky to have Pete Williams there. So as you, uh, as you finished your book tour for Top of the Morning, Brian... Oh, I'm just uh, getting started. <laughs> Um, you've lived with these guys for a year and a half with three TVs in your bedroom. Uh, you've gone up with them every morning, and yet the media business is much larger. Are you are you hoping to get back to both reporting about the broader issues of the media, or at least being able to pay a little bit more attention to it? And then, you know, you seem to enjoy so much coverage of other types of news, like the hurricanes as they come up the East Coast. Uh, the next phase of your career? I am looking forward to getting back and just writing good old-fashioned newspaper stories. Writing 90,000 words at a time is, uh, was not easy, and it makes a 1,000 words at a time look a lot easier. Uh, so I am looking forward to doing that. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of the next phase of my career, I hope it is just doing a better job doing what I do today, which is, which is coverage of the media. Uh, I think the best stories for me right now are at that intersection of TV and the Internet, where there's nothing less than a revolution happening. Uh, it, stories about Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and YouTube uh, are fascinating to me, endlessly fascinating. And I, I've got a list of about 100 stories in my mind that I want to write, so I'm going to get cracking on those pretty soon. It, last question. In terms of flexing your various writing styles, I mean, when you read Top of the Morning, it is a very different voice of Brian Stelter that co then comes across in yeah. the pages of the New York Times. And, you know, there's there's there are asides, there's a, a few obscenities or at least a, implied obscenities. What was it like to, you know, you're, you went from Towson to TV Newser to the New York Times to write in a totally different style for, for 100,000 words? I definitely approached it as an experiment. Uh, you know, I, I think probably uh, most of the experiment went well. Maybe some chunks didn't. Uh, but that's the point. Uh, that's the point of, uh, of media in general. You get to keep experimenting. Uh, and that's what I love about it. I loved being able to uh, write in a, in, a, in, a, in a hopefully funny way, in a snarky way sometimes, uh, in a much more personal way than I, than I can for the New York Times. And I'm glad that I can do both. I'm lucky to be able to do both. Uh, I set out to do this book in part just to see if it was physically possible for me to write a book. Uh, now I know I can, and uh, it certainly was a wonderful learning experience. Brian Stelter, author, Top of the Morning, out from Grand Central Publishing, and media reporter for the New York Times, now the three-time guest on Polyoptics. Best of luck with the, with the book tour, and best of wishes to your mom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. POTUS. Not red. POTUS. Not blue. This. Red, white, and blue. This. POTUS. POTUS. So in honor of this, our 100th episode of Polyoptics, I thought it would appropriate, given that the president uh, is spending part of this week uh, south of the border in Mexico and Costa Rica, to bring back an old friend, a guy who I worked arm in arm with uh, in 2009 as he was the special envoy to the Summit of the Americas that that year was being held in uh, Port of Spain, Trinidad, and Tobago. Uh, before that, the the ambassador to Venezuela and the ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, Ambassador Charles Shapiro. Welcome to Polyoptics. It is 
good talking to you again after so many years. Before we get back to uh, the rest of your career, um, what are the what are the issues so much at play between the United States and Mexico, given the the more than thirty years that you have worked as a diplomat in the region? Mexico is evolving very rapidly, and in a way that I think most Americans aren't aware of. And I've, the president's trip there is intended to to deal with Mexico as a normal country, an important country, and a key neighbor that's uh, key to economic growth in the United States. Um, I don't think there's anything dramatic. I don't think you'll see any great shifts in policy, but what you're going to see are two presidents sitting down and working together through a long list of uh, interesting and some difficult issues. When you and I were last together in Port of Spain, Air Force One was on its way to Port of Spain from Mexico City, where President Obama had just finished uh, bilateral talks with then-President Calderon. What's the difference in Mexican politics between Calderon and uh, and his party and now Peña Nieto and the return of the PRI? Calderon it was from a more conservative party, a much more business-oriented party, and a party which did not have an easy time governing Mexico because of its internal politics. The pre uh, Peña Nieto's party is the, the party which governed Mexico for over 70 years um, until it lost power in the 90s, and now it's, it's back in power again. Um, they see themselves as the natural party of power in Mexico. And the, the way people sort of think about it is that, that, that they're supposed to be, supposed to be, I'm not, not going to say it's true, but they're supposed to be better politicians, better at, at dealing with Mexican domestic politics, uh, with, the, with the governors who are very powerful in Mexico, and with the mayors who are also have, have more power than our mayors do in the U.S. And, and Peña Nieto himself was a governor. It, it seems like, as you read some of the reporting prior to the president's trip, you see people like our new Secretary of State, John Kerry, wanting to express a sentiment that the relationship between the United States and Mexico should be one of more than counter-narcotics and the, and the war on drugs, that in fact it is a bilateral economic relationship, which is that much more important in the current uh, environment. And as I was in Mexico a few weeks ago, I certainly felt that, and look at some of the statistics, that Mexico is in fact a, th- a thriving economy right now, even even growing even more faster than the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, in a way, that's an unfair comparison because we're a much more mature economy, and it's harder for mature economies to grow. But Mexico's growing rapidly, doing really well. Uh, not, not uniformly, not everybody, but doing well. Manufacturing's growing in Mexico. Um, and I'd argue, in a way, it's, a, it's not a bilateral economic relationship, but a trilateral economic relationship with one North American uh, manufacturing economy, Canada, U.S., Mexico. So that exports from any of the three include components from the other two. Um, the figure from Mexico is supposed to be that forty percent of of every product exported from Mexico is U.S. content. Another stop on the president's trip uh, is Costa Rica, and as a emblem of the rest of the region. And in your position now as president of the Institute of the Americas, what's what has been the evolving relationship between uh, obviously the largest economy in the hemisphere, the United States, and its neighbors to the south? And what are the things that the institute is focused on? Well, 
first of all, the, the, the president, President Obama, is not just going to meet uh, with the president of Costa Rica, but with the presidents of all the Central American countries plus the Dominican Republic, who are there for one of their meetings. I mean, their meeting was, was already scheduled um, and when, when the president's trip was added on. So it, it's, it's a chance for him not just to meet with Costa Rica, but to meet with Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and and the Dominican Republic. So that that that's significant. Um, first of all, for your listeners, is each one of these countries, even these relatively small Central American countries, is enormously different, and the, the South America is quite different as well. And what they really want is they want attention from the United States, not just from the U.S. government, but from our media, like you're doing now. Um, and from the, the the U.S. private and academic sectors as well. And, and as a nation, we've, to my way of thinking, have ignored Latin America. We're so focused on on economic relations with East Asia and on political problems in Korea and the Middle East that we have not paid sufficient attention to our neighbors to the south. And that's part of what the Institute of the Americas here in San Diego is doing, is that we're trying to educate people that there's great opportunity to the south of us, um, economic ac- opportunity, academic exchanges, you name it. Great, We've got growing economies with young populations, and that's the sweet spot for trade. Those are the countries you want to deal with. I think the last time President Obama met uh, off U.S. soil with these countries might have been uh, in Port of Spain when you and I were, uh, were, were there for the Summit of the Americas. And an interesting thing happened in that meeting with, uh, with the heads of state of, of the region. Can you uh, recall, and, and I'll, I'll add any color necessary, what happened when uh, President Chavez of, of Venezuela stood up? Oh, uh, that was interesting. I mean, they're, they're, I think they're actually in line waiting to, to, to go in out onto the stage in order. And uh, President Obama walked over to uh, President Chavez and shook hands with him. And our relations had been so tense uh, between the two countries that that alone just draw, drew a huge amount of attention. Um, and I think Obama surprised Chavez. I mean, it really faked him out. Um, and I think that was interesting. That's useful. I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm a big proponent that you want to talk to countries when times are difficult, when when relations are tense. That that's when you don't want to ignore them. Is when you need to talk to them. You and I were in the tank uh, getting ready for that trip, and we were trying to think of all the different permutations of how Obama and Chavez may or may not meet. And me, as an advanced man, could think, well, the far away, the farther away they stay from each other, the better. And uh, I remember uh, Dennis McDonough, now currently White House Chief of Staff, sort of gave me a wink. And as President Obama strode over to President Chavez and said, hey, how you doing? Uh, there was quite a smile on his face. Were you, were you tipped off at all that this might be the maneuver inside that holding room? No, not at all. I, I, actually, I was glad that it was initiated by, by President Obama, not by Chavez, because I mean, what I talked to, to Dennis McDonough about um, and to the pre-pre-advanced guys who had come down from the White House, was that President Chavez would, would, would do something to attract attention, that he would do something to, to, to put the focus on him. He's a great showman. Um, and by having the 
our president reach out to, uh, to Chavez. I, I thought that was a terrific move. Uh, before we get to your past with Chavez, let's talk about the present in Venezuela. You've written uh, Winners and Losers in Venezuela's Presidential Election. President Chavez, as we know, uh, uh, died, passed away of cancer earlier this year. Give us, give our listeners a little context of, of Venezuela, the country that was before, that was during Chavez, and, and will be following on. Okay, well, you're going to have to cut me off because I, I will go on <laughs> way, way too long. I know too much and, and want to share it all. But essentially, the, the country is they got the largest oil reserves in the world. Uh, it's got an economy that doesn't function. It's got a political system which has got you know, elections, but uh, then governance in a very, very autocratic way where there are no checks and balances and, and all government institutions are, are controlled by um, first by President Chavez and now by his successors, um, uh, Nicolas Maduro. And and it's going to be real difficult working through this. Um, in, in the winners and losers, I said Chavez in many ways was one of the losers in the election. Is that he left such an economic mess um, that his hand-picked successor, I, I'm not making this up, in a week went from a double-digit lead in the polls to winning the election by, I think it's 1.7%. I mean, that, that's huge, huge. Um, and that's according to the official figures. And, of course, the opposition disputes the official figures. So how they work through this is going to be extremely, extremely difficult. And the United States has really no leverage in in Venezuela right now. Um, So it's going to be something that the the Venezuelans are going to have to work out. Take us back more than a decade, Charles, uh, to uh, March 2002 and the assignment you're given, uh, assumed by Secretary of State Colin Powell, to to go be our man in Caracas. What happened? Well... (laughs) I arrived in late March 2002. I was there for about a month, and then suddenly on April 11, 2002, the whole country starts to to fall apart. Um, there are huge, mammoth demonstrations. I, I, I've never seen demonstrations like this anywhere in the world. The, 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 the people organizing demonstrations claim there are more than a million people. I mean, let's say it's half of that. I mean, 500,000 people. It's just huge demonstrations of opposition marching through the streets. Um, and as they march down towards the presidential palace, uh, supporters of Chavez open fire on them. Some of them had weapons and open fire back. Had huge confusion. Um, President Chavez called out the army to put down the demonstrators. And essentially the army refused to do so. Um, they refused to move the tanks out of the fort, that the, the army base in Caracas. And at that point, uh, Chavez turned himself into the military. I mean, turned himself over to the military. Um, confusion for a couple of days, and uh, an, an interim president who was amazingly incompetent. Um, and at the end of a couple of days, Chavez is back in office. Uh, uh, weakened, uh, not quite sure what kind of political strength he had, but but back in office by all this happened on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And what is the preparation for the U.S. ambassador to take up this post? What what that you'd spent your career and life in the region uh, in various posts, but uh, what were you thinking in January, February 
uh, of 2002 that you are you've been appointed to this post. Uh, you're going to go present your your credentials, and it, it could be a a, a great uh, moment for your own career. And suddenly, you're in the middle of a revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I mean, it it. Um I don't, first of all, I don't think anything can, can prepare you for that. I, I suspect I, I should have been better prepared, but I wasn't. I went to zillions of meetings, met with people, met with my predecessor, met with experts. But I, but I sure wasn't prepared for what was happening. Um, before I got there, I mean, there were rumors and reports coming in from the embassy almost every day of this person, that person, the other person uh, conspiring to overthrow the government. I mean, there there. I mean, this is the the media picking it up. You didn't you didn't need to have any special confidential sources. I mean, this was everybody was talking about the possibility of of coup uh, in in Venezuela. And when I got there, my instructions were to to tell people that we would uh, not look favorably on an extra constitutional change of government. That means not following the constitution of the country. And I was there for a month when all this just suddenly unraveled in an avalanche uh, against Chavez and then Chavez and his supporters coming back. And then are, do you get recalled? What, what, what is the role of the U.S. ambassador in the midst of all this? Well, I'm, I'm there and reporting to Washington. I mean, we set up uh, 24 hours, you know, had a, uh, a dedicated phone line to Washington, keeping them informed what's going on to the extent that we knew, because, of course, we're telling our people to not to get caught up in this. I mean, that this is not only for safety reasons, but also, you know, we don't want our people um, actively working with one side or the other. And so we're trying to get information. And, and just like in any crisis, there's loads of conflicting information going on. Um, and we want to make sure all our people are safe. So... I mean, and, not, and, and by our people, let me, let me explain. I, I don't. I just don't mean embassy staff. I mean American citizens in in Venezuela. I think, if I remember correctly, at the time there were somewhere between twenty five and thirty thousand American citizens living in in Venezuela. And and certainly last year's film, uh, Best Picture, Argo, brought into uh, great relief uh, the the role of the ambassador, the charge d'affaires, uh, looking after a country's interest. In that case, it was Iran. But reflecting on your career, uh, what are the things that sort of gave you the best training for being a diplomat, both in times of peace and in times of crisis? <laughs> Let me think about that for a minute. I mean, first of all, in times of of peace. I mean, experience is terrific. I mean, serving at other posts, knowing what's going on, understanding countries, um, understanding embassy staff and how they work, uh, all the different U.S. government agencies there. Um, that That's real helpful. In times of crisis, I don't think there are any two crises that are alike. Um, and so you've got to rely on people who, first of all, on your judgment, secondly, on what your people are telling you, your own staff, um, but also deal with people in Washington who've, who've got experience and, and know what to do. So as you think about uh, looking back on your career, and especially maybe over the last 15 years, Secretaries Albright, Powell, Rice, Clinton, Kerry, uh, what what has been the evolving role of the U.S. Secretary of State and and our diplomatic corps over the presidencies of Clinton through Bush and into Obama? First of all, I mean, the, the relationship of the secretary to, to the president is key. 
I mean, it it just really is. I mean, you've, you just just like any organization, there's a way it's written on paper, and you've got the wiring diagram of what's supposed to happen. But the relationship of the Secretary of State to the President of the United States is is is, is really key. There's a tension set up in our system between the National Security Council, on the one hand, and and State Department and the other executive branch departments on the other, um, and so for the president to let the Secretary of State determine policy means they've got to have a really close working relationship. Um, the other thing that I think is, I mean, this goes back longer than 15 years, but communications have just changed that whole relationship um, where Look, when I left State Department, people—at least people at State Department—weren't tweeting, but now they sure are. I mean, I certainly find out what's going on fastest and quickest, what's going on around the world on Twitter, and I suspect you do too. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to say, you know, for better or worse, I think Embassy Cairo, uh, you know, was found itself in a very difficult position with the Arab Spring, right? Oh, you bet. You bet. And but but what also happens at the same time is that all these people back in Washington, at State Department, at NSC, at you know whether it's Treasury or Defense Department, I mean they're all reading the same stuff at the same time, and there's a tendency to act on the basis of an email or a tweet um, before you've got the people on the ground to actually tell you what's going on. Beyond number one, is it true? And number two, to put it in context. Um, and it's also really easy now for uh, senior U.S. government officials, whether it's at the National Security Council or at the White House or at State Department, to, to pick up the phone and call their counterpart. Um, so it's you know you're, you're, the, the, the idea of ambassadors in the field making all these decisions. I think comes from the days of sailing ships and uh, instructions written. On uh, in letters by with uh, quill pens. I mean, all that is. I think since the first telegraph cable was laid, is is really been uh, an out of date concept. And and the ease and speed of communications just is is, is tremendous, tremendous. Well, your career may not span back to the days of quill pens, but how did you decide to get into the foreign service? Oh gosh, I've always had an interest in uh, foreign policy and international relations. Uh, we, our country, is extraordinary, and I'm privileged that the the way you join the foreign service is you take a test, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you've gone to school, um, or, or who your parents are. Um, you take a test. So I, a friend of mine suggested that we go down and take the test together, and, and, and we did, and I was fortunate enough to, to be offered a job. What was your first assignment? I served, you'll appreciate this, in the press office in Washington. I worked for the spokesman, Hotting Carter. was the spokesman. Hotting Carter this was the Hotting Carter III. This was in the Jimmy Carter administration. Cyrus Vance was Secretary of State. And I did that for a while. I was his staff assistant. And then my very first assignment, I went to Copenhagen, Denmark, to, to be a consular officer. And those are the, we still have a huge need for consular officers all over the world. They're the people who do visa interviews for both tourist visas and immigrant visas, um, go visit American citizens who've been arrested or in prison, um, who've had health crises of one sort or another. Um, issue birth certificates and death certificates for American citizens abroad. 
Um, and it's where you, you really come in contact with both the citizens of the country where you're posted, but also with loads of ordinary American citizens um, who happen to be in that country um, and, and who reflect for good nil the values of the United States. And, you know, the, 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 when I landed in Port of Spain to work with you for a couple of weeks on the Summit of the Americas back in 2009, you know, I was, you make decisions that, uh, well, you can be away from your family, you can be away for important moments. And, and for me, uh, one of them was the fact that Passover was taking place while I was uh, in the Caribbean with you. And you were so kind to open up your home to a, a, a sort of makeshift, well, not even a makeshift, but a real genuine Passover Seder. How have you been able to sort of... Uh, whether it's uh, religious holidays or national holidays like the Fourth of July, how do how does the Foreign Service make time to mark these uh, these important moments if you happen to be at a post that doesn't necessarily embrace them? Ha. Well, you, you, first of all, yeah, you, you just you, you decide what's important to you, and you have to do it. Um, so, I mean, the Fourth of July is easier because you know we always have money and put on a big Fourth of July party in the country. I mean, so, so that's easy. If you want to do it yourself and go out and eat hot dogs and play softball, that's harder. But uh, to, to, to have uh, uh, some kind of reception and invite the local government officials and the opposition officials and business community and labor leaders and all that, 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 that that's built in. The harder things are personal um, events um, and personal life, quite frankly. I mean, more and more people are separated from their families when they're abroad. I mean, all of our folks who are in Afghanistan and Iraq right now uh, are there without their families. And um, so they're, they're missing those family events. They're missing their children graduating from high school and all the, all the sorts of things that are so important. Um, they're not unique. Um, military people are doing the same, but it's a, it's a sacrifice. This latest chapter of your life, Charles, uh, as president of the Institute of the Americas, uh, work better for uh, work-life balance? But now my kids are are grown, and I wish they were here with me. So I, uh, my wife and I moved to California 18 months ago, 19 months ago now, and uh, we're we're new Californians, as is most everybody else here, and uh, trying to make a new life. And it's it's interesting. I mean, it is really interesting uh, to be in a new community, um, a city that's that, that that's vibrant, moving ahead. Particularly, I mean, I was surprised by the amount of really high tech life science industry that there is in San Diego. I guess I shouldn't have been, but I was. Um, and um, it's interesting trying to educate San Diegans and Californians that not that they should take their eye off China, but that there's huge opportunity to the south of us, not just in Mexico, but beyond, and in Canada as well. Well, Charles Shapiro, Ambassador Charles Shapiro, my friend from one of the most memorable trips I can possibly remember as a presidential advance fan, now president of the Institute of Americas. Thanks for joining us in this 100th episode of Polyoptics. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks, Josh. It's an honor, and I'm delighted to be with you on, on your 100th episode and hope to be with you on your 200th. We'll make a date. Thank you, sir. Good. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.